Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So for those of you who are new to this podcast, I thought it might be time to reintroduce myself to all of you. This podcast is all about not just parenting, but caregiving for any person with a disability, even if that person is yourself. And it is a space to come to for people who need or want information, who want to come and share in our community. And I created it when, um, as, as part of a journey. It, it started out with me in my life as a parent of a child with a disability. And that's not everybody's journey, of course. But my story is that I'm a mom to two girls, one of whom, Elizabeth, passed away in 2013, seven years ago, almost eight now, from profound disabilities. She was a wheelchair user, blind, profoundly intellectually disabled, but just awesome, happy kid. Um, again, lived to be 17 years old, and we shared a life with my other daughter, Caroline, who is now 20. Can't believe it. Time just flies by. Um, I, you know, definitely had a tough journey at times, but a lot of the times our life is and was just fantastic, beautiful, fun, crazy phenomenal, just everything that everybody else's life is. It bumped along on this crazy bumpy road. And at times it was smooth sailing and boring as heck. And, you know, hey, that's where we are. So having said that, um, I just wanted to kind of tell you a little bit about, again, why I started this podcast and all the other things that I do. So I am a disability attorney. I'm an advocate. I do planning. I do advocacy. I go to court. I, you know, propose guardianships and conservatorships. I write trusts and I go out there and fight the good fight and get public benefits for people like social security and Medicaid and state agency benefits and so much more. So mostly I think of myself as a navigator and that comes from, you know, 25 years of working within and without the system. Um, there is no one system, right? There's no one door that we walk through. And that is so, so unfortunate. So when my family was young, I wished for this place or this person or this group or this just one place to go for information. So I have been dreaming of creating such a thing ever since. It doesn't exist in our government. It doesn't exist in a nonprofit format. And it doesn't exist in our community. And, you know, I'm not going to be here, sit here and tell you that I've created this wonderful one door thing either. But I'm trying. I'm trying to get closer. I'm trying to bring that information to the community. And 
I know that not everybody can afford to see an attorney. I know that not everybody needs an attorney. Not everybody lives in Massachusetts. Uh, this podcast was created out of this desire that I have to bring people together, whether you are a professional, a parent, a caregiver, sibling, an individual with a disability, yourself, or a community stakeholder. Just whoever you are and whatever way you come to our disability community, I hope that this podcast is one of the ways that you will receive the information and the support that you need. So I know that we've also talked in the past about the fact that the special needs survival podcast maybe is not the terminology that you would use. And I agree that it isn't um, profound for everybody, but uh, as parents, we do tend to we do tend to use the term special needs. Um, we use special needs planning and special needs trusts as our terminology. So I have tended to fall back on that through the years. Uh, we use disability when we're speaking of individuals, disabled individual, disability planning. So um, please do note that I recognize that there is no one term, there is no there is no, you know, one path, one language. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll give me a pass on that when you hear the name of the podcast. But this podcast has been going since September of 2019. So almost two years now. And it is a labor of love. And what does that mean? the cost of running the podcast comes out of my own pocket and it does cost. Uh, I pay somebody to edit it. I pay to put it up. I, uh, because I'm a very busy attorney uh, and I have a second company too that, that manages trusts for people. I can't do this uh, during my own time. I can't edit these podcasts. And so I pay a marketing professional and I pay a, a, a professional who manages our website and, and puts the podcasts up. So all of this stuff costs us money and it is not done in an effort to bring people to our practice because it actually is separated from our law firm practice. It's, uh, it's really done to bring the news you can use to the community, if you will. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, again, I wanted to hit the rewind button and refresh people on where we are with the podcast. And for those of you who are new and haven't been here before or haven't heard this spiel before, this is what the podcast is all about. And also, we're going to be changing things up a little bit. So the podcast and the rest of what I've been doing for community information has gotten a little bit beyond what I can do. And I am going to slow things down a little bit. So we're, instead of putting a podcast out every week, and I used to do two a week, we are going to be doing podcasts probably two or three a month at this point. I will continue to do the best I can 
to answer questions on social media that come in and there are tons of them. And I so appreciate all of the support and all of the questions and the issues that get raised. I love the communication and I love the context and the contact that we have with all of you. It's phenomenal. It's so great. Um, Our circle of care will continue to go live once a week on Facebook. And I am trying to get my clubhouse room launched, but that's another effort that takes, uh, takes time away from all the other things that I do. So in addition, you'll see that I'll continue to write and I'll continue to speak and volunteer. But um, please be looking for these podcasts two to three times a week. So today our podcast is a little something different. I was able to interview attorney Jason Chan, who is a, a criminal defense attorney. And I have been dying to have this conversation with a criminal defense attorney. So I finally got my friend Jason to come and chat with me about how the criminal justice system unfairly treats developmentally and intellectually disabled individuals and individuals with mental illness or mental health issues. And it was a fascinating conversation. So Jason actually brought up some things to me that I hadn't even considered as well. Um, We talked about some high profile cases. We talked about how the police are not trained to react properly to individuals during questioning and arrest. We talked about death row inmates. We talked about uh, restraining orders and traffic stops and how the court does not always um, react properly to people with disabilities. But then we also talked about an area that I hadn't even considered, and that is young people in college who kind of have their first mental health break, which you know can typically happen. And what happens when they go missing and their parents can't find them? Fascinating conversation with Jason Chan. Jason, I am so incredibly grateful for the time that you spent with me. And audience, I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. So here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. And I am really excited to be back and talking to you today with Jason Chan. He's an attorney extraordinaire. He has a really tough job, though. As I mentioned in my intro, Jason is, he well, he's kind of a civil rights attorney. He's an attorney that deals with some really tough stuff. He does criminal law. And um, I am really excited to have him on the show because unbelievably so every week I get a call from a family member who asks me how to deal with uh, just numerous problems that come up with their loved one, uh, sometimes themselves, um, where they have had some kind of interaction with their disability and the criminal justice system. And um, whether it's been a restraining order or a basic traffic stop or something more serious, these issues come up uh, quite frequently. And I often am looking for really good attorneys like Jason to be able to refer them 
and I will not always hear back what happens. Um, Sometimes I do, but I am so grateful that people like Jason are out there in the world that I know and trust and I can hand families off to. So thank you so much for being on the show and welcome, Jason. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for having me. So um, I'd love to start with just a little bit about why you do this work, first of all, because this is really tough stuff. So why do you do this work? I mean, it is, it is difficult. Um, one of the big reasons why we do this work is really trying to protect people's rights and, and trying to protect people's lives. So uh, it's very meaningful work, but it is difficult. So, I mean, the criminal justice system has been under a microscope lately. It has for many decades, but this year, like no other, it has been. And I am here to say that both people with mental illness and the developmentally disabled are even more so unfairly treated by our criminal justice system um, than you know many other populations. And you know, I I really want to chat with you about that today. About first of all, how to keep our loved ones safe in these situations and how to recognize um, danger danger zones. And then is there anything that we can do to try to maybe not necessarily avoid because sometimes things happen, but you know, how can we sort of step through these situations as best we can and come out the other end? So maybe just to get started, um, why don't you give me your impressions of folks with mental health concerns and the developmentally disabled and how they are treated by the criminal justice system. So usually where we see it is essentially with law enforcement, right? Um, so law enforcement are generally what we say as first contact people, where they're going to have the first contact with someone who um, may have a, a mental illness. Um, from what we see is a lack of training, a lack of understanding on behalf of really society in general. Um, right. And, and more so that even law enforcement doesn't have a specific training to do with uh, individuals that may have different disabilities. Such um, as autism, oh, for absolutely. example. Absolutely. Or even if a person might just be anxious to speak with police, which is not as severe of a disability as maybe, you know, if they have PTSD, if they have uh, some type of mental illness that really makes them difficult to speak with someone in authority. Uh, and the problem is where there's a lack of training and understanding and the police are trying to make a snap judgment and a quick decision, it leads to da very dangerous situations. Um, Can you give me an example? Yeah, so you, you know, we recently heard about some um, things in the news about how there was an individual who actually spoke to call police themselves. Um, and it was a person who was uh, actually, they felt themselves were in a dangerous situation. They called the police. Okay. The police show up thinking that they were the perpetrator. Um, they thought there was something in that individual's hands. And then essentially they were trying to subdue the person. And it ends up being a cell phone. And the person's had the cell phone, same cell phone that they used to call the police. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, and those are the misunderstandings that happen where the police show up, they make a snap judgment and create, can create a very dangerous situation for people. 
who don't have the requisite training to kind of diffuse a situation where they're not even thinking about mental health being an issue to even spot, right? They're thinking about, I'm going to show up, I'm going to see if there's weapons, see if the, you know if this person has a certain attitude or disposition for violence. Um, but they aren't really on the radar to kind of figure out the other things that is more important, which is trying to assess the situation of what is really going on. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it, they're put in a, an impossible situation many times because they don't have the history. They get a phone call from a dispatcher to get out to a call with very little information. They're trying to figure out who's there, what type of threats there may be. And sometimes they don't even know why they're being called there. A lot of times it could, you know, it could be a neighbor calling who may be calling about one particular thing. And it turns out that it's something completely different. Right. So they've heard a noise or, you know, a some general disturbance. Right. Right. And um, just in generally, just kind of that first interaction with police, if the police doesn't have the training that mental health is an issue, it becomes a very dangerous situation. Right. So what if you have a neighbor and we'll kind of pose a scenario, a neighbor calls, oh, there's someone who's outside. We think that he might be intoxicated under some type of influence. We think we, he may have a weapon, he or she. Then the police show up. They're going to obviously be on high alert. We have a person who may be on, uh, on some type of substance uh, who has a weapon. So it could be not only a danger to them, but to a danger to the, to the public, people, right. right? Which they're very concerned about, rightfully so. But they show up and it turns out that the individual is not under, under, under the influence at all. They may be having some type of you know, psychotic episode. They might be having some type of mental health, health breakdown. They may not even have a weapon on them. But the way that they're acting um, gives the police concern because they already have a predisposition based on the phone call that came in, right? So um, if they draw their weapon, that's going to maybe even escalate things to the point that now that individual who's a suspect is, is even more irritated it actually makes the situation worse. Um, and that all comes down to really needs to be a lot of training with police and explaining to them about how to spot these issues, how to diffuse the situation properly mm -hmm. so it does not get to a point where it can be fatal. Are there training programs going on around the country that are helping these situations? So that's a really good question, Annette. And I think the the, the question, that's it's such an uh, important issue because they are trying to put in the training, but I guess the bigger question is, Annette, who is doing the training? Mm. Are the people doing the training have the skills themselves to actually know, one, know the issues well enough, and two, actually be able to communicate that to another person who doesn't have any of this type of background to be able to learn that? I mean, are they learning it in an hour, which, you know, would speak to any mental health professional, knowing how in deep and rooted these issues are, that's impossible to teach someone those right. things in and out. So like, what type of training are they getting, but from who? Um, I think it's such a deep rooted issue that even if they had the correct trainers, it would probably take a very long time to kind of correct those issues and mm -hmm. allow them to do that. But even to make it more complicated, we probably don't have enough experienced trainers at this point to even get to that point. Right. I mean, we've had just a very high profile case of the young man in prison with autism, right. for example, you know, who um, there have been many, many um, profound uh, statements of, um, you know, that he, his case should be 
reevaluated. He was a, a young black man. Um, I'm sure you know the case. But beyond that, there are smaller, I know, at least in our state, and I think there are, you know, very tiny little training programs and little pockets of training programs going on, but there's no universe universality around this. Right. You know, so right. here we have a training program around autism, the ALEC program. And but it's only specific to autism. And then, you know, you might have a program that's training first responders about, you know, some certain thing. You know, I recall with my daughter, Elizabeth, I was able to put the first responders in our neighborhood on high alert so that when my phone number rang up, people knew that she was very medically fragile mm-hmm. and all of her, all of her um, illnesses, all of her um, profile popped up on the screen for the ambulance drivers, you know, they would know everything that they were dealing with when they arrived at our home. So, um, and I think that for certain group living situations that the police and the first responders are alerted to what they're dealing with when a 911 call comes in from certain residences I don't think we have anything like that globally. No, definitely not. And I, I think that would be such an invaluable thing. But also, you know, the other issue too is we have obviously people with different mental illnesses, right? And they have different needs. Like it's not a universal protocol that would work for every type right. of situation. So I think that's also difficult too. But we also have individuals who um, are just going to live in one place for the rest of their lives right. because their disability kind of requires them to do that. But we also have some very high-functioning people who can live a very normal life, but there are certain triggers in their life that of course put them in a tough situation. So and what happens when they're out? Civil rights would preclude us from labeling them and having them, you know, be outed with a phone call from their home, right? Exactly. So we exactly. wouldn't want to do that. But I'm just thinking out loud of ways that people might be alerted to the fact that there is an individual in this home who gets triggered by loud sirens and men and women with badges showing up with guns. Exactly. You know, exactly. And then, you know, we also see um, a lot of scenarios that might lead to a lot of confusion and maybe not to the point where it's life threatening, but it's certainly traumatic to that individual. So it could be, you know, roommates getting into disagreements where it can lead to mm-hmm. restraining orders. So now that individual has to go to court, deal with a restraining order, never been in trouble before. So that's yeah. traumatic too. We, we get calls all the time about restraining orders, um, whether it's a roommate situation or a work situation oh, yes. or um, another romantic interpersonal situation there are a lot of individuals who don't know how to handle social situations right. and things go dreadfully wrong. Um, and people go to the court system before they are able to work through it in another personal, you know, more personal way. Um, and that can be devastating 
I'm sure you know, but maybe our audience doesn't know that once a restraining order issues, it can preclude many different housing situations for people with mental illness or developmental disabilities. They are now out of their housing situations in many instances and also, you know, will not be able to, um, you know, there's just a, they're, they're just precluded from living in certain uh, publicly financed housing. Oh, wow. So it, it can be devastating to have a restraining order levied against you. Right, right. And I, and I think also, too, um, to, to kind of talk to the audience about that, the fact that someone has a restraining order issued against them or brought against them doesn't necessarily mean they did anything criminally wrong. This just right. means that the person who was trying to get the restraining order felt like there was a fear of imminent bodily harm or some other type of issue. But we also... So that would be under 209A, but we also have the 258E, which is essentially a harassment prevention rule, which means that there was could be three or more acts of harassing conduct that um, that was concerned to the victim. So, and those are also as powerful as a restraining order because the violation of either is a criminal offense, even though there's civil orders in nature. But you know, both of them will have many different issues, not just inside of court, but also, you know, in terms of work, in terms of just like living, and it can really affect the person's life. Absolutely. Especially somebody who is dependent on certain public benefits and certain public supports, they will absolutely um, have a court records check run for certain living arrangements and certain jobs and um, will be, like I said, precluded from certain programs, unfortunately, if they have either either of those uh, restraining orders or, or harassment orders, as well as any, um, any kind of criminal, um, well, concluded case right. against them. Right. So, um, yeah, it can be pretty devastating to have these issues pop up in somebody right. with either a developmental or a mental developmental disability or a mental health disability. So while we're not saying that people should not pursue these issues right. if they have them with our community, we are saying maybe think twice before running to the court system and the criminal justice system if you don't need to go in that direction. I have known uh, multiple families whose first thought was get that weird guy away from my daughter as opposed to, you know, can we talk about this family to family and see what we can do? Um, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about any um, high profile cases that you, you know, maybe wanted to chat about. Um, and if not, we can move on to another topic that I um, am really dying to ask you about. So <laughs> did you have any high profile cases that you wanted to chat about? So, you know, most of the, the stuff that we see, obviously, you know, when you see these, um, things on television, you know, everyone talks about like the insanity defense being like a, 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 a hot topic. But the, the truth is, you know, when it comes to those things, 
no one really wants to use those defenses because essentially you're admitting that the crime happened, right? And that you're saying, mm. well, you shouldn't be find this person guilty despite the fact that they admitted that it happened because they could not uh, appreciate what they were doing. Um, so, you know, it's generally you try to stay away from that, but there has been situations where I think you know, a lot of people who practice for a while now um, will use you know, some type of mental illness or mental defect or disability to try to explain to the judge why certain things happened, right, over the course of a person's life mm. and why that um, it should be able to, to mitigate some of the sentences that a person sees or maybe mitigates the, um, the crime themselves. So that does come up quite often. But, you know, in terms of like a full-blown insane defense that we sell on television, I think there's somewhat of a misnomer because um, I think there is some pushback to say, well, you know, everyone claims that. It's actually in a very small percentage of cases that attorneys actually use them. Unfortunately, they're used in very high-profile cases, right. so it seems as though they're being used a lot more than they, they, they actually are in real life. But um, how successful are they? Because, I mean, we are seeing that death row is full of developmentally disabled individuals. That's a very good point, and, and, and that, that's the other reason why they're not used very often, because it's they're generally not successful. It's usually like a, a last um, defense that is available, and, and when people try to use them, they generally are not do not go very well with the jury. So they um, so that that is a problem. As a pacifist, if I were an independently wealthy person, I would spend my life fighting death row cases. I swear to you, I it would be my second passion. I I do not believe that. People who were there belong to be there for the most part. Um, I find it extremely sad uh, that the death row penalty is just not uniformly um, levied. And um, what do you think about that? And feel free to disagree with me. It's okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the, the good things is in state court in Massachusetts, we do not have death row because yeah. you're completely right, um, regardless of what you think about it from a moral standpoint, and I'm not here to argue with that, obviously, but you know, from a purely statistical, the way that has been implemented over the years, it's wildly disparate. So in terms of you know, race, uh, there's obviously a lot more people who are uh, uh, black people, men that are on death row than really any other race or gender. Um, so that's a, that's a problem. That's obviously an issue that has not been addressed. They don't seem like they want to address it, but that's obviously a very scary thing. Uh, but when you look at that. IQ, too, when you look at the IQ range, um, it's clear that we are executing developmentally disabled people at a very high rate. Uh, it's it's very sad. Yeah, you look at education, you look at socioeconomic background, um, you know, it all trends in a way uh, that the statistics say that uh, this is certainly not a fair process. Okay. Switching gears a little bit, traffic stops are deadly to most of our people. Yes. Um, it is very challenging for many of our people to learn to drive as it is. And uh, when you 
have anything that goes out of the ordinary during a traffic incident, whether it's a mistake that they've made in driving, whether it's inclement weather, whether it's, uh, you know, a one person accident or multi-car accident or, you know, anything like that, or whether they've just been pulled over for no reason, whatever that may be, um, many, many things go wrong right there. Um, so talk to me about that. And do you have any tips for how that can be better? Yeah, I mean, so you know, cars are cars are a dangerous place, right? So just from a purely um, standpoint, it's like you got to wear your seatbelt, you got to drive carefully, and, and I completely understand that alcohol and marijuana are legal, um, at least in the state. But you know, those are problems. Distracted driving is an issue. Um, so all these rules are leading to more and more people being pulled over for quote unquote legitimate reasons, right? Right. Um, you know, not wearing your seatbelt, texting your phone. So I think there was a lot of civil rights concerns about these new rules being implemented as it would lead to a lot of people being, more people being pulled over, a lot of them being minorities. Um, that's kind of what the statistics have shown over the years of who primarily happened to be pulled over by police. Um, you know, I, I don't think there is a particular uh, you know, solution at this point uh, to kind of solve all the issues, but what they always tell people is you have to keep yourself safe, right? So you absolutely have to keep yourself safe. You know, um, when it comes to young uh, people in the car, do not make any quick movements. Do not get out of the car. You, know, you have to obviously listen to instructions. Um, one of the things that is helpful, though, the SJC just came out with a new rule that you can record the police. Like you can do that. They were. That's just in Massachusetts. That's correct. They were using this asinine old rule that was under the wiretap statute. That was that was so stupid because it really had nothing to do with anything. And it had to do with these old gang cases many, many decades ago. And they're like, well, this wiretap statute applies and you can't record people's voices mm-hmm. without them knowing. And they said, well, you can record the police if you let them know. Well, that doesn't help. No, that does not help. And that only makes, and and the SJC essentially said, this only makes the situation worse. Right. If you are being pulled over by someone who is, uh, you know, has violent tendencies, now it's going to instigate them and make them even more upset. Right. Saying police officers like that. But we obviously have seen incidents where uh, police have, have been in situations where that has happened. So now the SJC is like, it doesn't make any sense that we're using this old wiretap statute to not allow people to record these situations privately. Right, right, right. So if you do have a recording device, if you have a dash cam, if you have a cell phone that you want to record the interaction, that's something that you can do. I will also say that before being pulled over, you can not interact with the police, especially if you're by yourself on a dark road, don't know who that person is behind you. Don't even know if they're a police officer. You can call the police to double check that they are a police officer. Yes. Police officers may not like that. If you are on a dark road and close to a gas station, you may want to drive very slowly. Do not accelerate. Do not right. make the situation worse for yourself um, to the closest 
uh, gas station nearby, pull into the gas station so that there's another witness there. You may want to do that. Um, but obviously that comes with certain issues itself too. Because, risk. Right. Yes. Uh, and it just now becomes which is more of a risk. So, but you have a young person, maybe they're 20 years old, maybe they're 25, but they're neurodiverse, okay? Maybe they have high-functioning autism. Maybe they have ADD. They are just different. And they get completely anxious and they freak out and they put their foot on the gas right. and they are just freaking out. And their only thought is I need to get home. And now they're in a high speed chase, but they're calling their parents the whole time because they're freaking out. And they're like, all only thought is I just need to go home. They're crying. They're like a 12 year old right. in a grown up body. And this, this has happened. You know, and the police are like thinking they're chasing Charles Manson right, right. because they don't understand who they have in the car in front of them. Exactly. This young person is not thinking and they're not going to calm down and pull the car over. And the parent is trying to calm them down and get them to de-escalate, but it's too late. It's gone past that. If you're that parent oh, talking to that child, how, what can you do? Do you get on the phone with the police? Do you explain what the police have in front of them? What do you do as the parent to try to keep your kid from getting shot? Right. So that's that's one of the most dangerous scenarios that we can really lay out. I mean, the first thing that they could probably do, though, the best thing to do is call the police, right? To call the police, hopefully the dispatcher will get to the police, get through the police officer and say, you know, just, just kind of know where they're going. And then hopefully the other thing you can do is hopefully have some police officers at the house without their lights on, already at the house, and just allow them to be the first people who essentially end up making contact with the child, right? After they've spoken to the parents, after the parents have the ability to go greet their child and bring them into the home and have a police officer there who's already been briefed about the situation. What you don't want is that officer who is now chasing them in the car, who has is probably really high on adrenaline, you know, despite their best training, like that's what happens when they're in pressure situations, they're gonna their adrenaline is going to drive up. And that essentially is, could restrict essentially clarity like a thought for them so that and they're, they're getting out of the car they're a quick decision if they're going to put their hand on their their gun if they're going to pull their gun like what's going to happen in that situation right instead what would be ideal is if you know, before the child comes home that there's another police officer that can be there that's already been briefed can kind of talk to his colleague say look you know i already talked to the parents the situation is somewhere under control the parents are going to talk to him real quick and then you know i'm going to go speak with them so now you're speaking with an officer who does not have that heads up adrenaline right to now be the first contact and even if it's just you know a situation where the person gets tackled or you know, definitely want to get tased or pepper sprayed or what 
may be, but it can escalate quickly, these things. So uh, that's kind of the best case scenario. The problem is because it's happening so quickly, it's going to be hard for dispatch to get another officer, right? Mm. So it, that, that's a very difficult situation. Um, and I don't know, depending on the relationship between the parent and the child, you know, how much of this can be um, told to the child in some ways that can kind of prevent this kind of escalating in the first place. That's kind of the best scenario. Right. So look, there's no problems getting pulled over. They're probably just making sure that you're okay. Maybe kind of couch it in that way um, to kind of give the child a little confidence when they're conversing with the police. Like nothing's going to happen. Fine. You know, they're there to help you or whatever it may be to kind of get that interaction with them. So. Oh my God. I couldn't think of anything scarier, honestly. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a, that's a terrible situation to be in. Unfortunately, there's no perfect answers to that situation because it's so fluid and it's going to happen so quickly. And that's the scariest part about it. Well, you know, the other thing is we have a lot more officers out there who have a disabled person in their family now. So that is helping the situation. Oh, good. You know, I mean, there are people out there with some experience, but not enough of them. Um, so, you know, in our pre-interview, you had mentioned something interesting that I had never thought about, and this was um, students. Yes. So yes. I think that our audience would be uh, really interested in hearing about what happens because so many students, um, well, so many, so many young people at the, that age, that college age, experience their first mental health issues. That's correct. So, That's correct. Um, please tell us um, about you know your experiences with some students' mental health issues and what yeah. families are facing. So, because you know Massachusetts is known to be well, more so Boston is known to be the education capital of the world. Uh, we get a lot of people who come here. And a lot of times they come here, they're away from their parents for the first time in their entire yes, lives. Right. So it could be overseas, it could be just nationally, someone coming from California or just a different state. They go to one of these really good schools, you know, no Harvard, MIT. Um, I learned about this as, as a young lawyer when I was getting a lot of phone calls to represent people to try to find their child, to figure out what's going on. Mm. They knew something was going on. Uh, the good news, they also knew the child was blind, but they knew something was going on because their child hasn't checked in, hasn't called them for a while. But the problem was the schools weren't giving them informa any information. Right. Because in the school's eyes, they're adults. That's right. One week ago, they're living in your living room. Next week, you know, next fall, Thanksgiving, they're going to be living, be in your living room again. But during those couple of months, they're treated as adults. Yeah. And um, th they're HIPAA. You know, rules essentially require them to tell nothing to the parents. Right. Uh, where's your child? I can't tell you. Can't tell you anything, even though you're paying tuition. Right. And still got to be living at your house. That's right. And you don't even have any right to their grades either. There you go. Right. <laughs> so that's, and it gets, it's. But it's, they really do just, want your money. <laughs> they definitely want your money. They want to make sure that check clears. So we, we essentially got retained several times by parents who are out of state and they're trying to track down their child talk to the school and figure out what they were. Um, and I started learning that there was times, and it's not unique. It turns out that there's a lot of people who 
the first time they figure out they actually have a severe mental illness or later. So it's like 17, 18 years old. Yes. Yeah. That really happens. Uh, it doesn't always show up in high school, um, but many people will have their first real psychotic break in college. Right. And the, the bigger, the, one of the environmental issues that kind of create that is high anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you a lot of pressure. These, right. If you go to some of these pressure schools, um, I've had people who said, oh, you know, my kid was the smartest kid throughout his entire life, valedictorian. But now he's at MIT. He's still really smart, but he's not top 10% smart at MIT. Right. So that type of pressure combined with this pre-existing issue essentially accelerates. And then they don't sleep well. They don't eat well. Exactly. They're not exercising like they might have before. And they're not around their family and their loved ones anymore. So they're not getting any support. Right. And so. also, hey, let's just face it. The winters here are gloomy. There's no sunshine. <laughs> right. It's brutal. So, um, and that was the big thing. Not having the family support, being completely isolated. Then they have a, a mental breakdown. Maybe they're, you know, the first time in their lives or maybe using drugs or alcohol to help them study or relax. Yes. And they're cooking them up themselves. And mm. that doesn't help either. No. And your body can only do so much you know, excitement or damage damage and depression at the same time so these things happen and before you know it that the police show up don't know what what to do they end up in the hospital nobody calls the parents because they can't can't they cannot and then the parents are trying to figure out that the hospital if they're stuck at bridgewater which is the mental health institute that we have in massachusetts not a very nice place by the way no no that that place is actually a Unfortunately, very poorly funded and very overworked. Um, and they're required to take every person that comes down to them. So they, they can be completely overwhelmed and still be required to make quote unquote room for an additional person. Right. So those are the things that, you know, from a parent's perspective that they really should know about, that they should do a lot of this quote unquote estate planning, get a power of attorney done, get you know, All the stuff we talk about is done because they're like, well, my child's healthy. Why do I need this? They're just going to college because they're adults. Right. That's why they are adults. They, they are not. Okay. Child. Podcast fans. Just so you know, we talk about this with all your healthy kids, as well as your kids who maybe have a disability or some borderline stuff going on. You need this for all your healthy kids too. Right. And, and the problem is once that you go down that road, you know, that does happen, God forbid. Um, they can't sign a release. They're not in the mental health. They're now. not competent anymore to actually give you the authority to get their medical records. Right. It's over. Correct. It's a done deal. Correct. And, and sometimes what why people hire us is to kind of triage the situation and kind of be the emergency. That's amazing. So what can you do? Not a ton. Um, what we can really do is advocate on behalf of our client. But also the other thing that we can do is kind of be the communication to actually be there and actually speak with as many individuals as we can. And then sometimes you, what we end up having to do is wait for the moment of clarity. So at least the doctors are like, okay, this patient wants this attorney to represent them. They've it's been medicated, medicated, but they get their own counsel. So right. you're able to talk with the counsel that they have. Right. Or sometimes we're the ones being hired by them to speak with them and kind of set things up. Once they're able to contract with you. 
exactly. And that could be a matter of a couple of days when they're medicated. That could be a matter of months. So wow. it takes a lot of time. Um, and the other issue is, is you have to kind of hit it right at the, the moment where they're medicated enough so that they're stable. Okay. I have an interesting question for right. you though. So seriously, Jason, don't you rub a little bit of feathers the wrong way with CPCS counsel, their appointed counsel though, because they do have appointed counsel when they hit the system. So it, so it depends. So we, um, so we haven't had that situation happen. So usually when you are talking about court appointed counsel, they're usually at Bridgewater for a period of time for involuntary commitment. Mm -hmm. So that does happen. Usually when we're engaged, it's really trying to find the person early on. Yeah. And the good news is a couple of times that we have done it, the person has was then released because okay. they were stable. But you're okay. right. You're right. So if it, there was like a long-term issue, then that would be something that we wouldn't represent them. Okay. Yeah. We're you would stay counsel. representing the family. Correct. So it's really to try to track down the individuals, trying to figure out what's going on and trying to really get them out of the hospital, get them home. Um, and we've, we've been successful doing that because a lot of it was really a stroke of luck that the individual was medicated enough, but wasn't medicated too much to the point that they don't know what's going on. Wow. So that's really good to know. I am going to keep that filed away because we have people who could use you <laughs> yeah. for sure. For well, sure, hopefully for sure. it doesn't get to that. But, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening is just where we have, um, you know, we call it part of the human fund, right? Just trying to do the right thing for, for other people around us. Like when the parents show up, just let them know where Bridgewater is, how to get to there. And not all of our clients speak English. You know, some of them come from China and, and never been to America. Right? Mm. And they're just trying to come here and say, all right, you know, stay at this hotel. Your child's going to be here. Oh, we'll my go God. I can't even imagine how awful that must be. Yes, it's it's horrible. And, um, and it makes us, America ruined my kid, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, too, I think the parents have an inkling. To, they're not super surprised. Like they are in some ways, but when you talk to them, they have a moment of clarity and they're kind of thinking, of it. they're like, you know, my child's always been high strong and they've seen issues kind of seeping and they're like, oh, they've always been isolated, never had a lot of friends. Mm. And that's not every situation, right? But sometimes they, they kind of see like, oh, maybe they're under too much pressure. So they actually have this idea of like, I did this to my child versus like the school. Or oh, how awful. And, and then you kind of have to kind of talk to them like, look, this is probably somewhere in your genetics, right? Like, probably. It could be, it could be not. Like, you can't really blame anyone. And certainly don't blame yourself. Oh, like, my gosh. Just for putting your kid oh, in a really wow. good school, like, don't blame yourself. Yeah. You know, that's not your intentions. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's, that's just awful. It really is. It's heartbreaking. So, you know, we tried to help the parents come over here in terms of just saying, look, like, this is the place to go. This is where you should be. This yeah. is how you pick up your kid. It's kind of like really basic things. Um, but luckily, the, the couple of people that we have dealt with this with um, were all kind of either short-term in the hospital, but they needed someone to kind of pick them up and bring them home. Or they were, the one incident was in Bridgewater, but they were released after a while. And uh, they just went home without the whole commitment hearings and all that. Wow. Yeah, got them stable enough just to ship them back. So Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, they're tough, tough scenarios. Wow. That's, that's um, quite a story. 
very sad. But I mean, it sounds like everybody was able to get home and back to their family. So that's great. Right. Oh my goodness. I mean, that was something I hadn't considered, but in, you know, stepping through it, I can see it for sure. I knew a lot of people when I went to school that went to all the really good schools. I went to Boston Latin school for high school. So Mm -hmm. everybody went to really good schools except for me. And, um, you know, there were a few of us who like just had trouble handling all the pressure. It, it wasn't for everybody. For yeah. sure. My, my wife also went to Boston Line. She was also an alum. Oh, really? <laughs> what year? Uh, I don't even know what year she graduated. So. Probably younger than me. But um, yeah, it's, and even Latin school was tough, you know? So some of oh, us. Oh, she tells me some stories about, especially how, how, how fast you had to eat lunch. <laughs> yeah, we had 20 minutes for lunch. It was ridiculous. By the time you got your lunch, you had about six minutes left. So it was crazy. Um, yeah, no joke. So that, um, that is some tough stuff to live with for sure. Now, rounding out our conversation, cause I've already taken up more time than I thought I was going to, but that was fascinating. <laughs> Just fascinating. Um, as we are kind of stepping through how the criminal justice system is unfairly treating our folks with mental illness and our developmentally disabled folks, I guess I kind of want to close out with any tips. We're really talking to family members primarily. I mean, we are talking to individuals as well, but mostly we're talking to family members here. You know, I always want to try to leave on a positive note in my podcast if I can. Is there anything we can be doing as a family unit or even in the community to to be working towards a better outcome with these situations? Right. So, and I think that's a very important thing. Um, I think the more people that know about this stuff, passing on knowledge, Mm -hmm. more people have experience with it. Like we were saying earlier, you know, more people are probably having someone in their own family that has issues. Um, and you can definitely see the difference in terms of someone who has experience with these issues and someone who doesn't. So um, just like the scenario that you talked about, there was a, another situation where um, I remember when I, I used to prosecute cases, there was, there was kind of a, a pretty uh, serious set of facts that, that if you looked at it, it would be pretty serious, but it's just that everyone in town knew this individual. Mm-hmm. So they were able to diffuse the situation very quickly yes. because they knew him. They're like, Oh no, no I, I forgot the person's name. Oh, little giant. That's a little, little Jack. It's like, they just were, they understood who he was. Right. Um, and that was what community. So they knew he was. wasn't a threat. Exactly. They knew that it was going to be okay. And if you just approach this way, you're going to be fine. That's exactly right. And they talked to him like a person, like their family member, and just diffused the situation because they knew his intentions weren't criminal at all. How do we get more training programs in place that make a difference? How do we do that? Our police, our fire departments, our ambulance, 
emergency technicians, they're all under so much pressure right now. And whenever I talk to anybody about DEI, they never include disability. Right. Never. Right. And and that's that's really too bad because it's such an area of need. It is. And, um, One in five. Right. In our country. Wow. One in five people. Um, and I think the big thing is is just advocacy. So community policing is a huge thing because you can affect those individuals in your community. But also what we were talking about earlier, Annette, that you know, a lot of individuals aren't going to just stay inside their house for the rest of the No, lives. of course not. And we don't want them to. So, right, exactly. So to live a full and healthy life, to the greatest extent you can, um, that's a fulfilling life. Now, you know, advocating with um, elected officials to have them realize this is a real issue, an issue that needs to be addressed, and an issue that needs to put funding towards. When it comes down to it, the more funding you have for facilities, for people who are training, for experts in the area to train people, that's what you need, right? Because unless it's going to be, even if they have training, if it's not like the best people to train them, then what good result are you really going to get? Mm. So I wish you guys were here with me. Jason's so huggable. I want to just <laughs> give him a big hug. He is the person that we need to go out and do this training, but he's very busy. So I'm sure he doesn't have the time for it. Anyway, I'm so grateful that you came today. I'm so glad we got to be here in person. I know, this is great. It's one of my very few back-in-person interviews that I've been able to do. This is awesome. I'm sure that you can hear this in the sound quality audience so much better. Anyway, thank you so much. This is such an important topic. So many important things are happening around this, this area of criminal justice right now. And it has been something I've been looking forward to talking about for a while. So thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. It's been a long time coming and I am so grateful that you were here. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.